0: okay we have bond you know bond for me is bond for me is quite good because it's a brand and it gets you know intelligence out there it gets people interested in intelligence but in terms of an accurate reflection of what mi6 does on a day to day basis it's absolute nonsense <laughs>
1: Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Those words by American founding father Benjamin Franklin are often paraphrased on the pages of Reddit into those who sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. Well, contrary to the belief of those on Reddit and conspiratorial pages on Facebook, Benjamin Franklin was not talking about a police state. He was talking about taxes. But don't worry, that is not what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to dive back into the world of espionage. This episode originally would have been combined with our previous episode on the Russian security services, which I encourage you all to listen to. But we decided to keep this one as a standalone episode because there were so many interesting topics that we were able to cover with our guest this week. Dr. Dan Lomas is a senior lecturer in intelligence and security studies at Brunel University. And this week, we asked him to comment on the role of intelligence agencies in democratic societies, as well as some hot topics that were in the news. We talked about the war on terror and how that affected the public view of the security services, as well as the debate over Huawei and other forms of Chinese espionage. For those of you listening in early February 2023, we had a brief discussion about the infamous Chinese spy balloon and what it says about China's security posture. For our Patreon subscribers, you'll be able to hear Dan discuss the effects of surveillance capitalism on the security services and how the collection of personal data by companies is reshaping intelligence work. Naturally, any conversation on Western spies must include a debate over who is the best bond. It's Sean Connery, by the way, although Casino Royale is the best movie. The Daniel Craig one, that is. But luckily for you, we kept that debate pretty short. If you would like to hear more from us, you can subscribe. And if you do subscribe, or even if you don't, Please rate and review Uncommon Decency wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at UndecencyPod, where you can also send us questions. If Twitter isn't your thing, and frankly, I don't blame you, you can reach us by email, which is undecencypod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the show through our Patreon. This pays for audio editing and microphones so that we can continue to produce high-quality episodes. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this edition of Uncommon Decency. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about a really interesting topic, which is the role of intelligence agencies in democratic societies. Um, For our listeners, we are recording this in early February, and the dominant story in the news at the moment is the Chinese weather balloon that accidentally drifted off course. But of course, it wasn't really a weather b- balloon. Um, it was a surveillance balloon until it was shot down by the United States over the weekend. Dan, um, I want to start by asking you what your assessment is of this incursion by the Chinese. I think my my assessment and reading the situation,
0: and I'm not a balloon expert, as a lot of, as a lot of, we've we've seen a lot of these on Twitter recently, but my my reading of the situation is that effectively this could be China almost laying down a gauntlet, or you know. Telling the United States we can we can do this kind of this kind of stuff um, just to just to anger you really and row you and, and and kind of get a response. In terms of the intelligence advantages of this, there's there's been a lot of commentary on um, well how does this change to you know uh, China's existing capabilities and frankly, it probably doesn't really add much to the Chinese intelligence arsenal. We we already know that um, China has extensive human network. Um, signals intelligence coverage it has cyber capabilities that it can bring to the table to acquire information on not just the United States but the West generally. So I think what we're seeing is just you know laying down laying down the gauntlet here, and this is, seems to be the the uh, representation
1: of the incident in in Chinese state media. Is there a parallel to the U two flights and the downing of the U two flight um, with the pilot Gary Powers during the Cold War? Do you think? I think politically,
0: potentially, yes. I mean, you know, spy flight incursions of the Cold War were, you one, dangerous, um, Mm -hmm. risky, politically and diplomatically. And it's interesting that the shooting down of the the U-2 spy plane and and powers in in 1960 actually ended um, or disrupted um, U.S.-Soviet diplomacy. Um, at, a, at a crucial point of the Cold War. So I think in terms of kind of the parallels on, on that level, we can say that this type of activity um, and overflights of sovereign territories is seen as, um, even in the case of a balloon, it's seen as a politically sensitive. And, you know, as always, it, it illustrates the fact that intelligence collection efforts um, can always potentially blow back and, and undermine um, diplomatic and political relationships that have been carefully cultivated over time.
1: You've spoken at the end there about the way intelligence can interfere, assist, uh, disrupt diplomacy. So let's take a step back and talk a little bit more about the role of intelligence agencies. So they sometimes do appear in the news, as has happened in the last week, but for the most part, operates in the shadows. Could you give us a sort of overview of how intelligence services can shape government policy and what their role is within the state? Yeah, I think in terms of, I think we need
0: to think about what intelligence is, there in the first place form and kind of definitions of intelligence. And as an academic myself, I, you know, we obsess about definitions of what intelligence is and what it actually means. And I think in essence, the, the whole point of intelligence is to acquire information on adversaries. So that can be state level groups. That can be states, sorry, or that can be, it can be non state groups. Um, and, you know, provide this information to policymakers to assist national security decision making. And I think the whole point really of, of intelligence is to provide information to those who ultimately have to make decisions, whether that's military decision making, whether that's at a political level, uh, or whether that's in guiding countries, um, you know, diplomacy, the intelligence is there to, to shape to shape policy. Now, I've been talking to my students this week about um, the intelligence policymaker relationship. And in theory, I think that, you know, intelligence is supposed to one, educate policymakers about the potential risks they they face in charting the, the national security world. And, and two, um, the idea of intelligence is that by providing information to policymakers, you get better policy decisions being taken. So in theory, at least, policymakers are there to use the intelligence that's being given to them to read it to integrate that into their decision-making process and then the idea is that you know national security decision making is going to be improved based on the information that um, we've, we've 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 given them now that's not always the case policymakers can sometimes ignore intelligence because they don't like it they don't like the message that's being given to them. Um, they have their own sources of information, so potentially they might use CNN. They might be using, you know, BBC News twenty four over over here in the UK. So they might be using other sources of information to guide their decision making process. But I think in particularly in a in a democracy uh, or in a liberal democratic state, we're using intelligence to shape the decision making process so that our policymakers. Or intelligence consumers can make decisions based on the best available information that's put in front of them.
2: Yes, well, you've uh, you've sort of described uh, the 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 use that is often given to the uh, intelligence that these agencies produce. Uh, but taking a step right back and kind of reflecting on the role, as Julian said earlier, the role of intelligence within the state. Uh, There's obviously uh, our listeners will be familiar with Benjamin Franklin's famous admonition that those who sacrifice liberty for security should uh, deserve neither, which raises the possibility that in uh, many of our countries, and I'm sure you can bring a lot of examples to bear uh, that show this the intelligence services can and often do infringe upon the civil rights and the liberties of the citizens they serve how do you conceive uh, or how do intelligence agencies themselves conceive their role in a democratic liberal state how do they balance their responsibilities i think
0: you know when we when we think about the role the role of intelligence agencies in broader society certainly in the united states you had in the mid 1970s kind of the year of intelligence and Um, concerns about the CIA being a a rogue elephant, both overseas and involved in domestic spying activity that led to kind of the oversight mechanisms that I guess you guys love in the United States, here in the UK. Uh, In the 1970s and 1980s, in particular, there were wider debates about um, particularly MI5, Britain, the UK's domestic security service doing things that were politically uh, and ethically unacceptable. And this led over time to the emergence of um, intelligence oversight mechanisms that we have in the, in the UK today. In terms of kind of where intelligence agencies sit, um, the difference, I think, between intelligence in a liberal democratic state and an authoritarian one is that is that intelligence agencies are not linked to party politics. So they are effectively that they are bipartisan. So they're not in the United States, they're not supporting the interests of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And here in the UK, you know, the head of MI5 is not working in the interests of the Conservative Party or the Labour Party. So they are, you know, politically supposed to be supposed to be neutral. Now there are times when you know, sensitive intelligence operations potentially go wrong or um, surveillance activity on legitimate political groups um, sometimes comes comes to light. And I think what we see here is, at least in a liberal democratic state, kind of checks and balances being put in place. So intelligence services are constrained legally. So particular laws are put in place that guarantee that the intelligence services know what they can and can't do. And also, I think, you know, nowadays, when you look at or you speak to intelligence officials and you look at what they put out in some of their major speeches, intelligence officials these days are fully aware that they work in a ethical and legal environment that requires them to um, abide by... You know these 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 particular frameworks and that they can they can be in trouble if they overstep the mark and i think that's a that's a key difference between kind of what we see in a liberal democracy and what we see in you know totalitarian regimes where of course in russia China, North Korea, Iran, the security services are often part of the political system and are there to support the, 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 the regime of the day. For example, the KGB you know, were famously the sword and shield of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And there was little doubt that they were you know, connected directly to the political system of the Soviet Union. So I think those are, those are, those are key differences really between kind of liberal, democratic and authoritarian states.
1: I just wanted to follow up real quick on some one of the things that you mentioned there. And thinking particularly about the United Kingdom, the British Labour Party has not always had the greatest relationship with the intelligence services. The book that Ben McIntyre published recency, recently, The Spy and the Traitor, sort of re-earthed a claim that the former Labour leader, Michael Foote, had been a KGB asset, which I want to clarify does not mean he was working for the KGB, but merely that they had attempted to recruit him um, or use him for information purposes. Um, That bipartisan nature of the intelligence agencies, is that something that is consistent and do you think will last into the future, um, given that we have seen an increasingly polarized environment across Western democracies? I think... think
0: in essence, in a liberal democracy, it, it has to. Um, the you know, the strength of intelligence agencies in the West is that they can they can tell sometimes truth to power. Now the Trump administration was a aberration in this, um, in that members of the US intelligence community were telling the Trump presidency that the Russians were involved in the twenty sixteen presidential election, and that naturally posed, you know, significant significant problems when it um when when the white house refused to accept this um in particular when we think about the labor party in the uk um the labor party has always had a jack o'n hide relationship with the intelligence community um on the one hand the labor party is seen as the you know representation of the workers um it's always viewed itself as socialist and it you can argue that ideologically particularly in the early days of the labor party it was a Odds with everything that the establishment and the intelligence services kind of kind of stood for, but I think that over time, governments, Labour governments in particular, have appreciated the intelligence that's being given to them by the uh, by the intelligence services. So the Attlee government, for those listening to this, the Attlee government, nineteen forty five to nineteen fifty one, founder of the National Health Service, um, you know, support of the welfare state. The Attlee government was also one of the architects of the post-war intelligence and security community for the Cold War and indeed actually wages a Cold War against both the Communist Party back at home, but also the Soviet Union overseas. You also see in the 1960s and 1970s the Wilson government have close relationships with the Labour Party, despite with the intelligence services, despite what he later suggests. And of course, after 1997, when New Labour comes to office, there's a close and intimate relationship between intelligence and policymaking under this under this period. I think th- the stuff that people often talk about a lot about. The, the tensions between intelligence and labor, labor often take place when the party's out of office, when you have people in charge of a labor party who are inexperienced, both in terms of you know, politics or being in office, being in government, but also people that are inexperienced in terms of what they think the intelligence services are there to do. And they often come at intelligence from a left-wing conspiratorial view of, of what the intelligence and security services do so my argument would be particularly in the in the uk i think a lot of this tension is often overplayed i think it makes a really nice story but actually reality tends to suggest that labor politicians are just as supportive often as the, the intelligence services as their conservative counterparts um and i think even you know in the united states we can see examples where you know, the Johnson administration didn't particularly like the CIA's, CIA's estimates of the war in Vietnam in the 1960s, which is a bone of contention. Richard Nixon famously. Um, you know, viewed the CIA as a bunch of Ivy League liberals that were messing up his policy, and did not particularly have a good relationship at times with with with, with Langley. But we've also broadly seen that you know both Democratic and you know Republican uh, presidents have you know have supported the U.S. intelligence community, even though they've had kind of spats over time. And I think, if anything, the history of politics both in the U.S. and UK tells us that. Um, you know, if intelligence agencies need to succeed and support policy, they need to remain, you know, bipartisan. And and I hope, I hope, and certainly all the f- stuff I'm reading s- seems to suggest this, that the Biden administration in the United States seems to be a return to normality when it comes to intelligence policymaker relations compared to what had come before in the Trump the Trump era.
2: Yes, and certainly compared to the accusations by the Trump administration that the other side had used intelligence against their 2016 campaign, right, and this really calls to mind um, the The example of, of my home country, actually, the the uh, the uh, 2004 terror attacks on the Atocha train stations in Spain, where uh, where a really interesting moment in the relationship between intelligence and the executive, uh, and I think it's it was an example that I think has a lot to teach us about uh, other countries too, uh, because when the uh, when Al Qaeda struck the the train station, uh, killing uh, about a thousand people, uh, the two main political parties at the time did not agree on who the culprit was. One uh, thought it was the ETA, the Basque terrorists, and the other thought it was uh, the Islamist uh, Al-Qaeda network. Uh, So I, I just bring this to bear as an example that, in fact, as you've pointed out, uh, there is a very uh there can be an awkward coexistence between the the intelligence agencies and the the executive right can you perhaps get a little bit deeper into how the uh leaders of the intelligence agencies are appointed in Europe versus uh the United States are these appointments partisan do they uh, mostly select people from uh with a with a background in a in a political party are they neutral are they uh what are they um well i'll start first with kind of the the the, the UK
0: political appointment system. And it's interesting you ask this question because just last week um, it was announced that the director of the UK Signals Intelligence Agency, GCHQ, um, was, was, was going to be, was, was, was resigning and the search is on currently for a new director of GCHQ. And there have been questions as to how, you know, how do you go through a process of um, selecting a chief of a service or a director? Um, you know, here in the UK, it's 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 quite a boring process. Um, in essence, you are sending out a job invite to a select few individuals um, to go for a particular post. So in the past, I know of examples where um, when it comes to a chief or a C, the secret intelligence service, MI6, um, the cabinet secretary or the intelligence coordinator in the cabinet office will usually just ask for people to be nominated for the particular post and usually i mean what you find in the uk is that we have appointment or recommendations from ministry of defense um, from within the agencies themselves um, and other parts of government particularly the foreign office and when what happens is a conventional recruitment process where you have you know four or five names of individuals put forward they're interviewed by a panel of permanent under secretaries and um there is an eventual winner of of this of this of this process in terms of kind of whether you need and there's a great debate here whether you need an insider or an outsider in terms of um appointments here in the uk they have been you know bipartisan these are you know standard although they're spy chiefs they are effectively heads of uh Small government departments. So they are, you know, impartial on civil service lines. Um, there is a debate, however, over kind of what makes a good spy chief. Um, some people would say you need an insider, someone who's familiar with the organization, someone who has done the role of maybe agent running or has done signals intelligence on the front line. But increasingly, what we're seeing in the UK is a move away from um, inside appointments to people who are externals uh, brought in. Um, you know, out of an you know brought brought, brought um, from within other, other organizations. So Richard Moore, the current chief of the Secret Intelligence Service, worked in his early days as a, as an SIS officer. Later on, went to work within the Foreign Commonwealth Office and became a diplomat. And then later on, was brought back into SIS as as as, as chief. And I think the suggestion here is that you know SIS as a chief doesn't want someone who is good at agent running, although that helps with your credibility in the organization, what they want is someone who can market the agency to departments um, within Whitehall and support the policymaking process. In the United States, of course, I know the system is slightly different. So you go through, you know, a presidential nominee is put forward um, and the president is very much more involved in the process of selecting, you know, a director of central intelligence. And there are accusations Particularly in the Pompeo years at the CIA, that um, you know you had a political appointee put in charge of um, uh, putting charge of CIA. So in other countries, it's it's more problematic, perhaps. Whereas in the UK, we've always had this tradition of kind of um, you know non political appointees to head the intelligence agencies.
1: I want to sort of pivot a little bit to discussing how the public sees intelligence services, and I think. A seminal moment in this would be, of course, the terrorist attacks on September 11th 2001, um, thinking particularly about the United States, but also other countries around the world. That sort of changed the way intelligence agencies were viewed. First, we had Richard Clark apologizing to the American people, but also the activities that um, the U.S. intelligence services helped by allies started to conduct and thinking principally about Guantanamo Bay how do you think the war on terror on a global level and its domestic applications affected the public view of intelligence agencies?
0: I think, it's, I think, I think it is significant. And it's interesting you start with kind of the 9-11, uh, you know, 9-11 is the pivot for this. That. Particularly in the United States, I mean, the debate over how could nine eleven actually happen? Um, you know, was this an intelligence failure? What are we getting for the amount of money we invest in intelligence? Were all kind of questions that were being asked at the time, you know, domestically. And I think for the intelligence agencies, the need to one kind of come out on the front foot of this and explain what they were doing against Al Qaeda was kind of one way of going, 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 going public. You also see. Um, it's not just it's not just the nine eleven wars. I mean, post Iraq um, and the use of intelligence in two thousand and two, two thousand and three to justify military uh, intervention in Iraq. You know, there, again, question marks are being raised here about the the role of the CIA, the impartiality of the CIA, uh, whether intelligence in the United States and other countries is 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 good enough. So again, the intelligence agencies are forced to kind of defend their actions and. Um, to talk about the necessity of what they're what they're doing and why they gather this information. And you know, particularly in the United States, the the um I think the nine eleven wars sees a return to the old tropes of the CIA being you know freewheeling organizations that go out there and do bad things to bad people, and again, it leads to these legal and ethical questions that really tarnish the reputation of um the cia in 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 some in some quarters so again, I think once you go beyond the bushiers. Um and questions then start to be asked about the role of the CIA in extraordinary rendition, torture, these kinds of things. You you have to see, you know, successive generations of CIA um leadership trying to move away from that um and trying to kind of atone for what happened previously and to move more into kind of the area of, you know, what is the bread and butter work of the CIA that's essentially Intelligence collection, you know, intelligence collection, intelligence analysis. Um, the other kind of landmark moment, I think, particularly here in the UK for for for, for us, um, and also maybe in the United States, and you know, we've seen the backlash for in other countries. Um, really, was the Snowden revelations in 2013? Um, you know, the, the leaks from Snowden, talks about mass surveillance, this kind of stuff. Really, was a game changer, I think, in how the intelligence services responded um, to, to 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 both the media and public criticism the idea especially in the uk up to 2013 seems to have been that you know you can get the minister to talk about intelligence and the intelligence services don't need to go public and they don't need to explain to the public what they what they actually do and i think there are quite a lot of people within uk intelligence that were um, one annoyed at the Snowden revelations in the first place, and two, they were concerned about the negative responses they were they were getting. Um, and as a result of this, I think that intelligence services had to go beyond traditionally stonewalling when asked awkward questions. They had to come out and explain kind of what they do, their legal and ethical framework, and they almost had to engage with the public to explain their mission um, to justify why you know, public funds were needed for intelligence gathering purposes. The other thing I think, and this is, we might want to talk about this later on, is intelligence agencies, both in the United States and the UK, have to challenge the traditional perceptions of what they what they do. Some of the polling in the United States seems to suggest, um, you know, popular perceptions of intelligence through films like born um you know, dominates public perceptions of what you know the CIA does and i think that was exacerbated by the um, kill and capture missions of the 9/11 wars the idea that they're not just intelligence organizations they go and they go and do stuff to bad people the problem with that perception is that it dominates really what the public think they think that the CIA is kind of you know, going out there and killing people rather than going out there and collecting intelligence. And the same here in the UK, we have Bond. You know, Bond for me is, for me is quite good because it's a brand and it gets, you know, intelligence out there. It gets people interested in intelligence. But in terms of an accurate reflection of what MI6 does on a day-to-day basis, it's absolute nonsense, of course. And I think that intelligence agencies have to kind of counter this. They have to explain what they do. They have, in a democracy you know, a democratic license to operate and they need to explain to people what they do, why they do it, um, and, and, and kind of how they do it to attract new generations of people to potentially work for those, for those organizations.
2: Yes, and let's try to shift uh, the focus a little bit uh, continentally and, and, and talk about Europe. You know, there's, uh, there's obviously been a, a whole debate around Huawei and its potential integration in European 5G networks. Um, how, how much weight should we give to, uh, what intelligence agencies are telling us about the risk from this integration? Do you think, are you, are are you of the view that parliament should be able to vote on such an, uh, on such a move, uh, as I mean, assuming that they have all the information that the, that they need, or do you think that they should go through some sort of classified briefing, uh, before they vote? Um, well, again, it's, it's it's a difficult, so, you know, particularly when it comes to Huawei, I
0: mean, the problem just to, for the context here, the problem is that the, you know, we're, we're no longer seeing governments in control over the tech environment in which they operate. That, you know, increasingly as part of a globalized world, um, we are now operating in an environment where private sector um, tech firms often dominate. Um, and the concern with Huawei, of course, is that it's not just a private of organization. We have alongside that, um, you know, the, the Chinese government backing, um, the Chinese government support for Huawei's activities. And again, this idea that Huawei is operating as a front organization for the Chinese government. And this is a debate that we're seeing not just in Europe, but of course, it's happening in the United States. It's happening in the Middle East. We're seeing this debate more, more, more broadly. In terms of kind of whether or not the intelligence agencies should provide reports or you know um in, become involved in debates then certainly yes yes they yes they should um, you know the intelligence agencies are in a position to provide informal sometimes informal sometimes formal advice on the threat that's being posed and indeed we're starting to see um in the UK and, and indeed in Europe itself um, intelligence agencies are being more vocal they are speaking more about the threat posed by China on a technological and also spying front um, and they are becoming more and more involved in, in, in public debates whether or not the input of intelligence agencies is definitive I think is is, is open to interpretation here in the UK for example and we had a debate about whether or not Huawei should become involved within the UK's 5G networks um, GCHQ and the NCSC, National Cyber Security Center, were actually testing some of the equipment that Huawei were proposing to use within the 5G, the UK's 5G network. And there were people within the intelligence agencies who did believe that the threat from Huawei could be mitigated, that you could, for example, limit Huawei to not becoming involved in core aspects of the 5G network, that Huawei could provide some of the more low-side tech Um, that could be and you could potentially mitigate the the risk there however it became something of a political hot potato um, when Theresa May was Prime Minister a long long time ago now it seems um, the May government was of the opinion that, yes, you could mitigate the risk from Huawei, but there were people within the government at the time, notably Boris Johnson, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, and Defense Secretary Gavin Williamson, were people who were opposed to Huawei becoming involved in, 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 in the tech sector. So I think what you had here was you had the intelligence agencies providing their own advice, but that the decision to allow or not to allow Huawei to become involved was essentially a political question. And as a, the, the problem is, of course, that in all questions of politics, you can use the facts however you want to justify the decision you want to arrive at. And what happened really in the UK was that it became a political hot potato that was passed from Prime Minister Theresa May down to Prime Minister Boris Johnson when he succeeded her. And eventually, the decision was taken not to allow Huawei to become involved um, in the UK's 5G um, infrastructure network. Um, so I think that, yes, intelligence services should become involved in these public debates. They, they certainly should. However, the problem is how politicians use the facts presented, the, presented to them to, to kind of make a decision. And I think that, again, we're always going to maybe see the politicization of intelligence to suit political
1: ends here. Sticking somewhat with um, the Chinese, and we spoke about the the balloon earlier and China's human intelligence strengths, um, and obviously Huawei considered um, by some to be uh, a Chinese intelligence asset. Um, It's presumed that China is going to start to adopt a more open and aggressive espionage posture uh, in Europe, um, which is quite concerning considering that most countries in Europe were I don't want to say unprepared, but perhaps not quite uh dealing with the threat posed by Russian intelligence services um as well as they should have been uh in the lead up to the war in Ukraine. Do you think Europe is ready um or is actively preparing for to counter uh some of the potential Chinese intelligence activities that we might see in the next few years?
0: Um, I think to somewhat to summarize the, the, the broad European response I think is is naivety. Towards the Chinese, the Chinese issue on 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 certain levels. I think on 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 one level, I think the question of China was always seen as more of a commercial interest rather than a security a security threat as such. That China offered, you know, markets to European countries for for trade investment. Um, and the idea that, you know, security was something to think about was maybe, a, a you know, a question that was added on, that was bolted on there afterwards. I think what Europe faces alongside the United States when it comes to Chinese intelligence operations is almost a death by a thousand cuts, really, that what we're seeing here is China, um, you know, there is... Yeah, the well publicized uh, restrictions on kind of semiconductors to, to China. And there's the whole kind of tech war that's taking place at the, at the moment. But what we're seeing here is Chinese investment, uh, Chinese front groups, Chinese human intelligence networks are providing, you know, little pieces of the jigsaw that can be built up into, um, you know, bigger picture stuff for, 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 for Beijing. And I think that, you know, a coordinated European response. Across the European Union, for example, is difficult. We've seen already with the Russian invasion of Ukraine that a coordinated European response has been difficult, uh, particularly with countries like Hungary, uh, maybe you know, muddying the water somewhat. And I think that when it comes to kind of wider. Chinese intervention, I think you know it becomes a matter for individual state sovereignty as to what levels they allow um, China to become involved in key critical national infrastructure and I think that 's kind of the the problem that European countries face as a coordinated as, as a coordinated response. I think you know in terms of European intelligence services. China is coming along at a time when, you know, it's a difficult moment, I think, because on on one level, intelligence services in Europe are dealing with Um, international terrorism, which, of course, is the immediate threat that causes loss of life. and, 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 And that's the problem that policymakers may want them to focus on. They're also facing now a threat of Russia. And I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February last year actually gave European countries the opportunity to do things they may you know, may not have been able to do pre-invasion, i.e., kind of clamp down on Russian networks of agents. You know, arrest individuals, that kind of that kind of stuff. But we're also now having to deal with uh, the problem of China as both a, um, a global economic player that has economic leverage over countries. We're seeing China as you know posing a threat technologically. Huawei is a good example of this. But we're also seeing China, you know, compete with the West on military military terms, diplomatic terms, Uh, and in terms of intelligence networks here in Europe and, and overseas, it poses a significant problem. And I think, you know, the problem for Europe is that this is just one. This is perhaps the biggest problem, but it's also one of many problems that the European intelligence services are dealing
1: with at this at this moment in time. Just sort of sticking with Europe um, for a second and thinking specifically about the Russian threat. Um, it, it's been reported that some countries are not exactly secure in their intelligence networks. Um, Austria springs immediately to mind. How much of this is sort of accurate and? How much of it is a, a bit of bluster to sort of point out that some countries perhaps weren't as willing to sanction um the Russians due to long-standing economic relationships?
0: Um I, I kind of I think I think it's difficult it's difficult to assess more more broadly in terms of um you know threats and responses to, to, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um I think you know, there are naturally some countries out there who may have been ambivalent. Um, and I say that, you know, in a country that, you know, the UK, we, we we responded quite rapidly to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But it could be argued that when it comes to sanctioning kind of Russian oligarchs or seizing assets, we've been particularly slow. But we've also been slow when it comes to um You know, for example, sources of political funding. And there are allegations that Russian money is continuing to go to, you know, political parties here in the, in the UK. So I think, you know, before I, before I kind of criticize other European countries, I think we also, I also need to acknowledge limitations here, you know, in the UK, the, the UK too. I think, you know, it's always been difficult for European countries to deal with the threat of Russia. Um, you know, politically, I think there are different levels of acceptance of Russian intervention. Um, and, you know, Austria, you mentioned Austria before, Austria traditionally has always been a hub of espionage in the European context. Um, same with, with with Germany. And I think Germany recently has been rocked by allegations that, you know, there's been Russian spies within uh, Germany's foreign intelligence service, the, 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 the BND. I think, you know, there are also... Um you know questions over in the early part of the the twenty twenty two um particularly you know French foreign policy making and the support that you know French intelligence were providing to their policymakers and some concerns over that you know um what French intelligence believed was going to happen and 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 subsequently happened, so I think again there are always going to be differences here I think when it comes to assessing the threat of russia um When you read a lot of the material and you go back and look at the stuff from early 2022 and and immediately following the Russian invasion, a lot of the um, more solid statements, uh, solid actions against Russia came really from some of the um, NATO allies who have skin in the game when it comes to the threat of Russia. So we're talking really about the smaller Baltic states, uh, the Poles, um, have been quite vocal on the threat of Russia for, for a number of years um, and have been willing to you know, respond and uh, expel Russian diplomats and um, clamp down on Russian, Russian money that's been, been coming in but again I think it politically sometimes it's difficult I think it's been very very difficult for European countries to even acknowledge the threat of Russia before the Russian invasion in february 2022 for diplomatic reasons you know saying that Russia is a direct threat you know can be, can be difficult diplomatically and I think you have to you have to you, there's a tightrope there where the you know european diplomats have had to, to 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 juggle i think once russia invaded ukraine i think it becomes much easier then to clamp down on russia as a significant threat and we've actually seen you know european powers clamp down on russian espionage operations we've seen more information being put out there on what russian intelligence are actually doing we've we've seen um you know, European governments sanction um, oligarchs for, um, you know, flow of money through their countries. So I think we, we are starting to see a more coordinated response, but I think, again, it's, it's difficult diplomatic for, diplomatically for some European countries to act in particular ways.
1: Well... Dan is out. Myself and Jorge are in. And I need to start with the most important question. Jorge, who is your favorite
2: Bond? Uh, I think Daniel Craig is, uh, I mean, really ranks uh, higher up. uh, If only because I have a cousin who looks exactly like him. (laughs) (laughs) Must be nice. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But... um, but anyway i thought I, th- I mean i thought it was a very uh, a very interesting sort of broad perspective which uh which is going to make for in- an interesting follow up listen to our episode with Andrei Soldatov which is releasing this week this one's releasing next um what what did you think about the episode generally julian
1: yes i th- i think uh, perhaps a bit of context for our listeners we had originally planned to record a single episode with Andre and dan Um, and then we sort of changed it, uh, and did one focused on the Russian security services. Um, and then this week recording with Dan talking a bit more about Western intelligence agencies. And one thing that I think was a a constant thread throughout our conversation today with Dan was the tensions inherent in a democratic state and the responsibilities that a Western intelligence agency has to its public, uh, to politicians, to parliament, uh, or Congress, depending on which country you're in. And how they balance those responsibilities of explaining their work to the public, which is something that you don't have to do in an authoritarian state. Um, in large parts, because you know the public in an authoritarian state uh, is in many ways fearful of you, which isn't necessarily the case in Western societies, or at least really shouldn't be. If you're someone running an intelligence agency, and we're starting to see this more with a bit more of a proactive communications. A campaign from various intelligence agency heads. Uh, thinking about the specific, the United Kingdom, uh, you'll see the heads of GCHQ, of MI6, and MI5 uh, do. Well, I'm not to say regular, but they'll they'll do a think tank event or or an interview with the Financial Times and give a sort of broad uh, assessment of the security situation as part of an effort to sort of define the role of the security services and be a bit more public in the way that they keep society safe, which part of it is driven by uh, an effort to recruit more people into working for the security services. Um, you know, we sort of talk, you know, Dan mentioned bond and, you know, so I've joked about bond, but it, those are recruitment tools. People are interested in intelligence work and uh, we're starting to see a bit more um, of a public relations effort from intelligence agencies to explain their role Uh, not only to reconcile the inherent tensions in having a sort of security service in a democratic state with uh, civil rights and a a long history of protecting civil rights, but also as a means to recruiting people uh, into working for them. But Jorge, what did you think, you know, you mentioned a couple of incidents in in Europe, what are your thoughts in general on the episode?
2: Well, I think to begin with, I think the, this, this episode really laid bare uh the n- nature of intelligence as part of what we could call in french uh, les pouvoirs régaliens the regal powers of the state uh among which we among which there are uh defense diplomacy uh, uh uh justice uh and and a few and a few more but intelligence is certainly a part of it that's that's certainly what i took away from Dan's uh, exposé um uh you know i think uh, does that mean that uh, that all political parties look up to the intelligence services in the same sort of reverential way no it doesn't uh we've seen it in twenty sixteen with the uh accusations by the Trump campaign that the Obama administration had been snooping on um, on some members of that campaign so we can see certainly where a uh, cases where uh the intelligence services get uh sort of degraded, they get uh, used and even utilized for for partisan political gain. I gave the example of the 2004 terror attacks in Madrid, which were uh, truly traumatic for my country, and they happened uh, just a few days, actually one day before uh, the 2004 elections. Um, And they were the elections that saw the uh, outgoing uh, center right PP government lose to the incoming socialist one. And like I said, this is yet, yet again another example of how sometimes the intelligence services get muddled into the sort of the messy terrain of swampy. Partisan politics. Uh, it, we, uh, when the attack happened, for for a couple of days, when the attack happened, this, these were a series of bombs that were detonated in uh, a series of train uh, trains that were just making their way into the Etocha train station in Madrid. Uh, for two days after the attacks happened, there there was no uh, certainty as to who were the, the the attackers. But one side of the one side of the spectrum, the right wing side of the spectrum, said it was the Basque nationalist terrorists, the ETA, because the right wing government had sort of launched uh, a very aggressive campaign against the ETA. But the socialists said, no, no, this is nothing to do with the ETA, this is Al-Qaeda. And in fact, eventually it turned out to be Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda was retaliating for Spain's participation in the the Iraq uh, invasion. So again this is just another example that shows that yes it's a bit of an awkward coexistence sometimes as much as we would like to see intelligence as a non-political sort of insulated uh service within the state the reality is that many times intelligence gets embroiled in in politics. Yes
1: and that's you know obviously a tragic example of that occurring and you know you mentioned the Al-Qaeda's retaliation against Spain for its involvement in the Iraq War. I think Iraq is, you know, it's I asked about September eleventh. Um, but Iraq is probably another one where we could point to the politicization of intelligence agencies. In fact, it's a comment from uh some comments some intelligence analysts in France uh and Germany that they were wary of American assessments in the build up to Ukraine because of the what they see as a proclivity for US intelligence agencies to be politicized there's an anecdote in the memoir of the former senator from vermont patrick leahy who talks about um his vote against the iraq war and how it was informed by a morning jog that he went on in his washington dc home when two gentlemen ran up behind him alongside him and told him to look for file number eight which is obviously not the name of the file um But to look at file number eight, and so when he got to the Senate, he asked for file number eight, he read it, and it undermined all the claims that the Bush administration were making. Um, And he, you know, would voice this publicly on the news and um, push back on some of the intelligence claims. And then the next time he was out for a jog, um, the same two guys came up to him and said, if you thought file number eight was interesting, you should read file number 12. And I think this goes to perhaps something that we didn't get into today which is that we do think of intelligence agencies and government departments as monoliths in some ways and that's just not the case like any business they're going to be competing analyses um, there are going to be competing voices and differing assessments and the central tension in what an intelligence service has to do is they have to reconcile these differing opinions. They have to consult the different analysts and their different opinion, uh, opinion makers and different sources of intelligence, uh, to provide an informed assessment of what they think is going to happen in a particular event or their informed assessment of the situation in a given country or within a given terrorist group. Um, and anytime they make a mistake, it has tragic consequences. They have to be perfect every day of the week. And I think that's you know something perhaps we can talk about uh, in the future. Um, perhaps if we're doing sort of a retrospective on the Ukraine war is um, the sort of unique nature of all the intelligence services being united in their assessment of what was happening there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining me for another episode on spying intelligence um with limited references to james bond and the born series um but perhaps that's that's for future future episodes or a bonus episode that we do um jorge thank you again uh i hope you have a wonderful week
2: you as well thank you julian
1: thank you and to our listeners thank you for tuning in again uh, you can always rate and subscribe to this podcast we really do appreciate it it helps us get our name out there if you are on twitter you can follow us at at uh, Uncommon Decency pod, um, where you'll see us retweet episodes, we'll tweet interesting links to stories that we see. um, And we're also on LinkedIn as well. So if you'd like to share the podcast with your professional networks, perhaps if you work in the think tank space or the foreign policy space uh, and want to share some of the things that we're talking about, we really appreciate it. And you can find us on LinkedIn there. Um, You can also subscribe to our Patreon and support the podcast. Um, We don't we do this for fun, we do enjoy it, but recording equipment does unfortunately cost money um, as does editing software. Um, so we do appreciate any financial support you can give us, but you can go to the patron. Um, and I think it's, you can give as little as a, a dollar a month or, or $5 a month or something like that, um, to help us out. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of Uncommon Decency
2: and we'll be back next week. Take care.